Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's open together to Psalm 103. Our text this morning will be Psalm 103. This is, without a doubt, one of my singularly favorite psalms. And all I want to do in the next few moments is make it one of your favorite psalms. And you'll see how much we need it and how good it is. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 103. We don't know the exact historical moment in the life of David that prompted this poem. Perhaps he wrote it when he recovered from sickness. Perhaps he wrote it after he experienced an absolutely marvelous, miraculous victory from God in battle. We don't know the circumstances of this psalm. The one thing that makes this psalm stand out is this. There's not one prayer request, not one petition, not one lament in this psalm. And that's why I picked it. This psalm is praise from front to back, from side to side, from east to west. The whole thing is filled with nothing but worship and praise. And I believe that's why we need it. And I believe that's why we need it today. Like any carefully constructed poem, you'll see when we read it, it goes from verse 1 down to verse 22, and the first line of poetry in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, is identical to the last line of poetry in the last of that little triplet in verse 22, bless the Lord, O my soul. That's how a carefully constructed song or even a carefully constructed novel works. You start in the beginning and then you go all over the place. And in this psalm, we will go all over the place, up into the angelic realms, back into the time of, of Moses. We'll go everywhere. And then after all of those twists and turns, we'll land right where we were supposed to be. You'll see how it reaches the zenith there in verses 20 and 21 and 22. We go up to the angelic realms, that is beings that aren't even human, and all the works of the Lord. And then we'll end right within one solitary human heart, mine, yours doing the one thing that it needs to do, blessing the Lord. Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. 
He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, all his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I hope you'll see with me that this psalm gives us these, let's say, six triumphant truths in troubled times. These six joyful celebrations of God's goodness, always, no matter what. Number one, we see this. My soul needs me to tell it to bless the Lord. My soul needs me to tell it to bless the Lord. You see that in verse one? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, verse two. Then you see it in verse 22. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. Four times in the opening two verses, the psalmist commands his own soul. He speaks to his insides. He commands his memory. Think on this, remember this, and focus on that. My soul needs me to tell it to bless the Lord. You do know, don't you, that sometimes you got to tell yourself what to do. Sometimes you have to tell yourself to consciously recount the goodness of God and the memories of God's faithfulnesses and to list out God's goodness. Note that when he tells his soul what to do, note just three things right off the bat. First, it's personally, my soul. Second, it's unreservedly, all that is within my soul. And third, it's resolutely, because four different times in these two verses, he commands his own insides. Psalm 103, verse one and verse two is one of those verses where you could sort of you could sort of float out of it and ask, well, who is speaking in this verse? And to whom is the speaker speaking? You see, let's say, if I'm the psalmist, I am addressing my own self. RBC, I've told you probably a couple times in the last couple of weeks that we need to keep telling each other this. You can listen to the news. You can listen to your own anxieties. You can listen to the buzz and the panic around you, or you can speak to your own soul with the word of God. You're either going to be a person who shifts and sails on every wind of emotion and the passing things that are happening around you, or you're going to be a person who speaks to his or her own soul about what matters most. All that is within me, bless God's holy name. All that is within me. Let my intellect know who God is. Let my will 
choose the way of God. Let my heart long for God with all of its affection. Let my confidence lean fully and wholly on God. Let my imagination dream of God and his goodness. Let my desires long for God. Let my memory praise God by remembering his many faithfulnesses. And let my mouth praise God. Church, what you feel is what you feel. Church, what's happening around us is what's happening around us. But church, what we know and what we believe matters most. Behind every sermon that's ever come from this pulpit is the deep, deep reality behind it all, which is that God's truth is not dependent on, upon our current circumstances or the passing passions and feelings that whirl within us every day. And so sometimes, many times, you got to tell your soul what to do. You got to tell your memory what to think on. That's the first tremendous and joyous truth that we find here in this psalm is that my soul needs to tell me to bless the Lord. Secondly, my soul must remember and celebrate God's goodness. We see this in verses two through seven. My soul must remember and celebrate God's goodness. That is when you're telling your soul what to do, what you're telling your soul to do is to remember and celebrate God's goodness. And we see this, this marvelous list of all of the, or at least some of the respective goodnesses that we find in God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, or it even picks up in the last line of verse one, bless his holy name, bless the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. You know, before the benefits, verse 2a comes the holy name of God, verse one, C, the third in that triplet there. First the name, then the benefits. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray this way, our father, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, the most common type of prayer is God help me. The most common motivation for prayer from the human heart is to be in a jam, to be in a pinch, to have a need, and to just cry out to God, God help me. And that's a perfectly legitimate and biblically warranted type of prayer. But here, the first prayer is the name of God the reverence before God, the worship to God. Even in that master pattern that Jesus gave us, he gives us uh, lots of requests about daily bread and about protection and about temptation and everything else. But he starts at the start, which is the name, the name, hallowed be thy name. Why do we start there? Why do we start there? Because whatever our needs are, the only way those needs, listen, the only way those needs are going to be met is if God is who he says he is. If his name isn't what it is, then we could shout our needs all day, every day, and they, they would never find rest. They would never find anchor. They would never find an answer. Whatever needs we are going to roll out, and they may be many, we, we may not have a clue what we need, but the only way that a need can be met is if God is who he claims to be. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
That's the only reason prayer matters is because God is who he says he is. Your name, your glory, your name. Church, now more than ever before, we need to rest in the name of God. Now more than ever before, we need to worship. You got a hundred prayer requests and so do I, and there's a place for them. But now more than ever before, we need to worship. Look what it says. Bless his holy name and forget not all of his benefits. Again, I am commanding my own memory. Hey, remember this. Remember God's blessings. Taken as a whole, verses two, three, four, and five recount many benefits that the Lord has given to us. When, when we don't remember God's benefits, it's not because there are not benefits for us to remember. It is because we have belittled the goodness of God. In other words, church, when you aren't praising God, when you aren't worshiping, it's not because there are not sufficient reasons to praise God. It's not a lack of God's provision and God's goodness. It's our forgetfulness, which is an inconstancy that is itself an iniquity, a sin that we need to repent from. It's a spiritual sluggishness that's not just kind of an innocent laziness, but that's a, a hard-souled ingratitude, an ingratitude that comes from forgetting God's bountiful blessings. Forget not all his benefits. Let's talk about remembering God's goodness and, and forgetting God's goodness and being ungrateful, and let's walk it back, okay? The first sinner was not a human being, but an angelic being. Why did that angelic being sin? Because he was ungrateful for what he had, and he grasped for what he was not given. And then the first human sinner who sinned, why did he or she sin? Because of ingratitude for the many bountiful blessings that they had been given, and instead, in ingratitude and forgetting God's goodness, they reached for the one that they didn't have. If you're not remembering all of God's many blessings to you, it is not because God has not sent sufficient blessings to you. If you're not worshiping God, it is certainly not because you have something more important to be doing right now. Ingratitude is more serious than we think it is. And we need to call our soul to remember the benefits of God. That's what true worship is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You see verse three, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Verse three is not an absolute promise of healing when we put it together with all the rest of the biblical revelation. We know from scripture that God doesn't heal every believer of every disease down here, but that's one of the things that he gives us is healing. 
and he forgives our iniquity and he redeems our life from the pit. And look at verse four, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. We sang of, we sang of crowning the Lord God with many crowns because he has crowned us with steadfast love and mercy. Listen, listen, church, you have been given a crown of steadfast love and mercy by God. So listen, you don't have to run around on this planet like so many insecure people reaching for another crown. The crown that God has given you in salvation is, is a greater blessing and a greater benediction than you could have ever imagined receiving. And it's yours in Christ Jesus. He's already given it to me. And so I, I say to my soul, soul, will God crown you with loving kindness and mercy? And will you not get up, get on your feet and, and crown God for his many blessings to you? There's no way my soul could be silent. There's no way I could stay still when God has given me so much mercy and so much grace. He crowns us with his loving kindness. And then look at verse five. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Youth here is vigor, energy, vitality, and brightness. Did you know that, did you know that youthful, a, a youthful-like energy comes from praising and worshiping and being grateful? Did you know that the wrinkled, old, dry soul is always the ungrateful soul? Is always the soul that forgets the goodness of God and instead complains to God. It is the grateful soul, the worshiping soul that has that inner beauty of perpetual youth. I'm talking about real beauty here. The kind of, the kind of inner beauty that shines through no matter what age the body is, no matter how wrinkled and falling apart the body is, there is a youthful vigor and beauty in the grateful worshiping soul that the ungrateful soul that refuses to worship can never touch. And man, can I just show you something amazing in verses seven, eight, and nine? I, I love the Bible. I love noticing all these little things that are in the Bible. It's the best. Reading the Bible carefully and slowly is just the, the best thing we can do. So look at, uh, look at six, seven, and eight. Okay. Verse six is the attributes of God, his righteousness and justice. Verse eight is the attributes of God, his mercy, his grace, his slowness to anger and his steadfast love. So between the attributes of God in judgment and righteousness and the attributes of God in mercy and grace, between six and eight, look what we have. Verse seven, the revelation of God in history. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. That is telling us every story in the Bible Man, I hope our families are reading those Bible stories every day, especially now that we're together more than we ever usually can in our, in our busy way of life. Every story in the Bible, every story in the Old Testament illustrates the righteousness and justice of God, the mercy and grace of God. There's so much to be found in the scripture. And the more we remember it and the more we lift it up to God, the more youthful and the more beautiful our souls become. So we got to bless the Lord. We got to command our soul to bless the Lord. 
And then as we go through these marvelous lists of benefits, the third truth that we could find in this psalm is this, isn't it? That God forgives and takes my sin so very far away. God forgives and takes my sin so very far away. This is in verses 8 through 12. The issue of forgiveness comes up in verse 3. He forgives your iniquity. It comes up in verse 4. He redeems your life. It comes up in verse 8. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's there in verse 9 that he doesn't keep his anger. It's there in verse 10 that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. It's there in verse 12 that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's there in verse 13 that as a father has compassion, so he has compassion on us. The forgiveness of God is all over this psalm. And the forgiveness of God is one of the main reasons that our souls bless the Lord because God forgives and takes my sins so very far away. Notice how it starts in verse eight. Notice how it starts. The Lord is merciful and gracious. You see that? The Lord is merciful and gracious. So all of the mercy and all of the grace that God has given us is because of the name of God it's because the Lord is merciful and gracious. You know, it's not found in this psalm that the mercy of God is delivered to those who merit it or those who successfully perform enough to get God to look their way. That's not the name of God. That's not the attribute of God. You see, it's that God's mercy flows from who he is. And you see how he's slow to anger, second half of verse eight, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How many times, it's a lot, how many times over the years have I, uh, as a pastor, have I mediated between two Christian church members who were angry at each other? It's more times than you'd probably guess. It happens a lot. Because we're quick to grow angry and we're slow to forgive. And our God is slow to grow angry. And our God is quick to forgive. He's quick to forgive. And he's slow to grow angry. Look at verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he repaid us according to our iniquities. In verse 10, it's, verse 10 is like, um, is like the poet's mind is blowing at this fact. God hasn't crushed me like a bug. God hasn't crushed me. He's only tenderly humbled me when I needed it so that, so that the sin would be purged out of my life. He hasn't crushed us. He's only lightly corrected us. That's how God has treated us. In him is only good. In me is only ill. My ill but draws his goodness forth and me he loveth still. And in trying to measure, verse 11, in trying to measure how far God has removed our sins from us, the highest measurement for the Hebrew mind was the sky and the broadest measurement for the Hebrew mind was the east, the sunrise to the west, the sunset. Throughout church history, the dimensions of verse 11 have been interpreted as the dimensions of the cross, the beam from down from heaven to earth, and the arms stretched aside from side to side. 
when God forgives, this is how he forgives. He forgives like an omnipotent God. He forgives with the blood of Jesus. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, I sin like a man, but he forgives like a God. God's forgiveness is no small forgiveness. God's forgiveness is no, well, there's just enough, but if you mess up one more time, he's going to get you. God's forgiveness is like himself. It is omnipotent. It is eternal. It, It is sufficient. And it is all that we need. Oh, God's forgiveness is such a blessing. And that's one of the, that, that's the third tremendous truth that we pull out of this psalm is that God has forgiven us and he's, and he's taken our sins so far away. But then watch the fourth one. God loves me and draws me so very close to him. That's the fourth one. If the third one was how far away he put my sin, the fourth one is this. God loves me and draws me so very close to himself. God loves me and draws me so very close to him. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to us. Verse 11 and 12, the immeasurable distance from east to west, from the dust of the earth to the galaxies of the sky. That's the immeasurable distance in 11 and 12. And then the intimacy of closeness in verse 13, the intimacy of a daddy and his kids. Language is being stretched to its limits. In verse 11, the immeasurable space. In verse 12, the immeasurable distance. In verse 13, the you almost can't get more intimate than the intimacy of a family. Two ends of the spectrum, the polarity, the chasm there between how far our sin is and how near God has come to us. And look at what it says. Like a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. A father is older and wiser and more aware than his children, right? You take a small child who's not yet really self-aware, say a two-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old, a three-and-a-half-year-old. It's been my experience that when a two-year-old or a three-year-old lies, it's usually patently obvious that they're lying. They're just not sharp enough and self-aware enough to cloak it and to get really good at it. So an older, wiser father is always going to be more aware of his children's sins and behavior patterns than the children are aware of them, right? Well, take, take that analogy and push it one step further. God knows the deceitfulness of my heart more fully, more closely, more accurately, more meticulously than I myself do. And that knowledge that God has of how ugly I am inside does not compel him to cast me away, but it compels compassion from his fatherly heart to my undeserving spirit. This is the wonder of the gospel. Verse 14, he remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. One old commentator, I highlighted this when I read it last week. It's so perfect for our frazzled times. One old commentator says of verse 14, this knowledge of God embraces our constitutional temperament 
that is the feebleness of our understanding, the strength of our fears, the shattered state of our nervousness, the violence of our many temptations, and our readiness to sink into melancholy. And all of this calls for God's tender, ever-present compassion. Oh, how near God comes to us as a father, the intimacy that he has with us. And so as our frame, and God remembers that we're dust, a fifth truth that we can find here to remember always and even to rejoice in is this. My life is short, but God's love is everlasting. Verses 15 to 18, that's the fifth. My life is short, but God's love is everlasting. You see that in verse 15, that our days are like grass, they're like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it's gone, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ends. Humanity's dependence and weakness, the transitory, temporary nature of our lives. We're frail. We are insignificant. Job 14, man is born of woman and is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and he fades away. He flees like a shadow and his life does not continue. Life is called a flower. And it's so, I I suppose it's the case that flowers are so beautiful because they bloom so quickly and then they fade away. I brought flowers home this week. I was like, well, if we're stuck in the house, we might as well have something beautiful there. The flowers are beautiful, but they don't last. They, they fade away. You know, I suppose it's some inexplicable part of the artistic temperament that the sunset and the flower is particularly attractive and beautiful precisely because it's passing. The rose soon withers, the sunset. If the sunset just hovered and stayed like that forever, it wouldn't be so heart-achingly beautiful. It's the fact that it fades away that makes it so precious to us. This life is fragile. This life is precious. We long to be with each other. We long to embrace each other because life is so fragile and so short. Life is so fragile, this poem says, this is why the poem is so instructive. Life is so fragile, verse 16, that what does it take to knock it over? You see that in verse 16? Life is so fragile that it can be ruined by the wind. You know, it's, it, would, it would be another thing if it said, life is so fragile that when God sharpens an iron implement, he can cut life down but it doesn't take a harvesting machine. All it takes is a breath of wind. That is how fragile our lives are. That's how easily we're harvested. That's what a vapor is, just a breath of wind. We shouldn't need so many reminders of the brevity of life, but we do. And beloved, God sends us these reminders, not to push us further down and inside of ourselves, but to lift us up to him. Now is the time when we need to worship more than ever. Human life is short and uncertain. The only thing certain about human life is that its duration is short. But God's loving kindness, verse Verse 17, God's loving kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord. You see that in verse 17? is from everlasting 
to everlasting. God's loving kindness is from everlasting to everlasting. I just want you to see, I'm telling you, even the little prepositions in the poem matter. Even these little flourishes of the artist's uh, artist brush. Look at verse 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. How awesome is that? God's steadfast love is from everlasting. Meaning what? You didn't cause it to be. It wasn't like God was just walking around and then he saw you and then he fell in love with you. His love is from everlasting. Before you ever were, that's, his love was there. And his love is to everlasting. So from everlasting, you didn't cause it. To everlasting, you can't cause it to end. From everlasting, you didn't earn it. To everlasting, you're, you're not about to unearn it. God changes not. His compassions fail not. God set his love on you because his name is the God who loves. It's from everlasting and it's to everlasting. And church, you are secure in that love. Rest in it. Hope in it. Sing out of it. Pray out of it. This is our God. And finally, we see in verse 19 that God is in control. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Truth number six, God is in control and I can trust him. God is in control and I can trust him. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Church, the throne of God is established. Hello? It's not being constructed. It's not buffering. It's not getting ready. The throne of God is established. It's settled, immovable, perfect forever. About the government of God, there are no emergency orders. There are no last minute updates. There are no, well, we're doing the best we can, but there are competing interests, so we're just trying to figure this out. There's no hurrying and scurrying and paneling experts to figure this and that and the other thing out. Amy and I are just about done reading this precious old book by Corey Ten Boom. And Corey Ten Boom, that great matriarch of the faith, she's famous for this saying There is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. God has no problems, only plans. His throne is established. God's sovereign rule. Look, we're in verse 19 of this song. God's sovereign rule, I hesitate to say it, would be horrific if we couldn't trust that God is love. But by the time we get to verse 19, that God's sovereign rule is perfectly established, we have learned that God is the only one who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. God is the only one who works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God is the God who, as a father has compassion on his children, shows compassion on those who love him. That's the God who is in sovereign control of the universe. We can trust him. 
We trust his heart. We trust the hand of his providence. I remember a Uh, Many years ago, hearing a very famous lecture, maybe you've heard it by R.C. Sproul about the maverick molecule. You ought to look it up this week if you've never seen it before. And he he references verse 19. And the great theologian R.C. Sproul talks about a maverick molecule in the universe. He says, don't you realize that if there's one maverick molecule in the universe outside of the scope or sphere of God's sovereign and divine control and authority, then that single maverick molecule could be the grain of sand that changes the entire course of human history or that blocks God from keeping his promises or that prevents Christ from the consummation of his kingdom. But you see, there is not one maverick molecule in the universe. The sovereignty, the throne, the dominion of God is established. Church, God's sovereignty speaks first of his position. He is the chief being in the universe. From him and through him and to him are all things. And after speaking of his position, God's sovereignty speaks of his power. He is the supreme power in the universe. Everything that exists in the universe exists because God has allowed it or decreed it or called it into existence. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases, Psalm 115.3. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in the earth and in the sea and in the deep, Psalm 135, verse six. God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. God's sovereignty rules over all. That's the blessed truth here, that we can trust him. Church, we can trust him. And trusting him means we worship him. Trusting him means we worship him. And so we come right back to where we started, don't we? Verses 20, 21, and 22. Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, Oh, my soul. And I love that the end is right where we were at the beginning in verse one. I see see like the, the whole galaxy in verses 20 and 21 and 22. And then I see an accordion back down to one individual person. You see, as vast as the chorus may be, angelic powers And then all the works of the Lord, all the the mountain goats on the hillsides in Israel and all the fish in the sea, as vast as that chorus is, the psalmist comes back and I come back and you come back to this. As vast as that cosmic chorus is, it's like it wouldn't be complete unless my little voice joined in because I need to sing to the God of my salvation and I need to bless the Lord. Oh, church, let others worry. We will trust. Oh, church, let others murmur and complain. We will bless the Lord. Church, now more than ever, we need to worship. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray. Lord God, let us forget not all of your benefits. Lord God, let this church hallow your name and worship you 
in all things, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, I pray for my precious Racine Bible Church family. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.